Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and it's been a couple of weeks for the podcast, but we are back with an episode focused on border and travel restrictions. How important and effective are they in a pandemic? How does Canada's system of rules compare with best practices around the world? And when can we start traveling again? It's unfortunately an area of policy that has become deeply politicized in recent months, seeing the conservative premier here in Ontario attacking our federal government's travel restrictions in, quite frankly, a transparent attempt to deflect from his own policy failures. That said, while our federal policies may be subject to unfair partisan attacks from Premier Ford, it's also no reason not to subject them to scrutiny all the same. So with that in mind, I am joined by expert Kelly Lee professor at Simon Fraser University, Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance. She's contributed to major studies of WHO reform, including assessments of the global response to SARS and Ebola virus. And she's currently leading the Pandemics and Borders Project, focusing on cross-border measures during the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Lee, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to meet you, uh, Nate. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. I learned of you by way of media in some ways, seeing your comments in the media, but also having reached out to Professor Fisman, I asked who is your go-to expert on travel, and I'd read through the COVID Shield recommendations from January, and he identified you quite quickly. So I'm very glad to be connected. Well, that's great. Yeah, this is a subject we've been studying for over a year now, and we've learned a lot through this project. So I'm very happy to share what we've learned. Let's start with what we knew before the pandemic and how that knowledge has changed considerably to where we are today. We all saw the recommendations from the WHO early on, and that was based on the state of the evidence as it was then. What is the current state of the evidence in terms of the effectiveness of travel restrictions? It's a great place to start. So the subject of travel restrictions and border management more generally uh, during this pandemic has been very complex in part because the virus keeps throwing curveballs at us and partly because the evidence is shifting as you describe. So back in January, 2020, we know that WHO recommended against the use of travel restrictions. And that was based on previous pandemics or previous outbreaks, Ebola virus, pandemic influenza, and those sorts of outbreaks where travel restrictions didn't really work very well. So they based their recommendation on that advice. So we fast forward 60 months And the science has shifted considerably. So what we know now from all sorts of studies, epidemiological data, modeling studies, and most importantly, genomic sequencing of the virus, is that travel has perhaps been the key factor in the spread of COVID-19 worldwide. So we know that the virus, SARS-CoV-2, emerged in one part of the world, and then within a matter of weeks, possibly days, it spread through travel from its original location to other parts of the world. So by February, and perhaps even earlier, it was probably already circulating globally. So travel has really shaped how the pandemic has unfolded from day one. And we continue to see the dynamics of this pandemic unfolding with the variants of concern being moved about worldwide through travel. So here we are in Canada, we didn't have the virus 16 months ago. Six months ago, we didn't have the variants of concern. So SARS, COVID 2 was introduced by a few travelers initially, and then repeatedly over time, we're having repeated introductions. So that we now know. And ultimately, you could argue that, you know, all of the cases are travel related to some extent. If you drew a giant phylogenetic family tree of all the, of the samples that we have, you could trace them all back to travelers. That, that is a scientific fact. So in short, what the science says is that we recognize this now. And we're moving from arguing whether travel restrictions are effective or not to how we use them effectively, what measures are useful, how do we apply them in ways in combination with other measures. So we know that, of course, these are very difficult policy questions. You always have finite resources, but we're trying to figure out where do you put your resources to be most effective during a pandemic such as this, with this particular pathogen or this type of pathogen. Have best practices then emerged? Do we have sufficient evidence given the what you have described as the varied and chaotic responses across countries in relation to travel restrictions? And even in Canada, we've seen many different kinds of restrictions over the last year plus. But we've also seen some jurisdictions within Canada, Atlantic 
provinces in particular, but also people point to New Zealand and Australia that have had really tight restrictions around travel. Would you hold those provinces within Canada, but also those countries as best practices today? Or are there other models we should be looking to? Yeah, those are good examples for sure. There's now an emerging body of evidence that's really revealing to us which countries have successfully kept their number of cases and deaths relatively low compared to other countries and how effective border management has been a key part of that success. So you mentioned some of those countries. I would add in honorable mentions, Mongolia, which often doesn't get mentioned, Thailand, Mm. South Korea, and so on. So there are many countries out there we can learn from and sub-national jurisdictions. So you mentioned the Atlantic provinces. Taiwan, I should throw in as well. Very interesting case there. So definitely there are best practices. And because there's been near universal use of travel measures, and these measures have been applied in such different ways, we can learn a lot from just comparing countries and comparing what measures they used in combination and when they used them and so on. So there's a lot of variables to look at to make sense of this best practices search. But um, I think we're starting to learn a few key things. Yeah. So what, 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 I guess what, what have we learned in terms of then best practices and how either within this crisis on a going forward basis as other countries don't have the vaccination rates that some countries increasingly have, and so they continue to need to take public health measures and, and restrictions seriously. But what, what are the lessons learned for us? So we recognize each country is going to be different in terms of size and geography and political and legal systems, but we have learned a number of key things. So the first one is that your strategy needs to be preventive, not reactive when you're dealing with border management. So the nature of global mobility means that populations are always mixing worldwide, whether it's at airports or holiday resorts or other settings. And also people travel often through many countries before they actually reach your country. So it's important to recognize that. And that means that the virus is being circled around, being mixed, being spread in many different ways. So the bottom line is that, you know, if you have a virus that's evolving and moving quicker, then you could target travelers from hotspots and risk areas. You need to really treat every traveler the same as if they were potentially carrying the virus. And it's like a potential ride into Canada. So um, the immunity status may well change, you know, um, the ability for us to differentiate travelers by risk. But at this point, it's a losing game to try and guess, oh, yes, travelers from India, they're going to be more likely to carry the virus than travelers from Brazil or travelers from the US, because at the moment, populations are traveling worldwide. So you want to apply your measures to every traveler entering your jurisdiction at this point, regardless of their purpose of travel, what point of entry they're traveling into your country, land, air, or sea, and where they're traveling from. And so the virus doesn't make distinctions. And so you you shouldn't either. So that's the first really key lesson. And we could talk about whether you know Canada has that in place. The second thing is that border management just doesn't happen at your border. Effective border management requires policies applied pre-border, at the border, and then within your border as well. So you need to think about the traveler's whole journey, really. And that if you want to achieve your policy goals, You have to think about it as different stages of a journey. So if you want to deter people from traveling, you can put in certain measures. You know, the hotel quarantine is a good one. Surcharges, testing, that kind of can deter non-essential travel. You can also create measures within your country, such as community contact tracing, in order to make sure that travelers who have arrived and have been testing negative up to that point, but then say test positive on day 14, are tracked and traced and and then further quarantined. So you you want to make sure you have a full set of measures that covers the whole journey. And then I guess the third thing is really there's clear best practices in terms of the evolving science around this particular virus. So we know that you need multiple tests because the virus can be very elusive. And particularly the variants can test negative several times before you can actually finally get a positive result. We know that you need 14 to 21 days of mandatory quarantine, and this may not need to be a a government-designated facility. It could be in a person's home, but you have to make sure that they're complying with with your requirements. And then, you know, really it's about making sure that people are screened properly so that you don't just have, you know, are you feeling symptomatic, then you go into this queue, because of course we have a lot of asymptomatic cases. So you want to set it up so that the science is evolving and you're 
border management practices are also in, aligned with those. So that needs some adaptation as you go along. It's not just set something up, put your feet on the desk and let it unfold. And then Nate, finally, the last thing I would say in terms of best practices is that you're going to have cases elude your international border management. It just happens. You know, cases maybe don't get picked up after 14 days, and that has happened. People may not be complying with the quarantine fully. So you're, you're going to get cases sneaking through into your domestic jurisdictions. And so really, you need a layered approach where you have multiple layers of government working together. And so that travel management, border management is really a you know, a multi-layered approach. So interprovincial travel, intra-provincial travel, all travel really is potentially problematic during this pandemic. So you really need to kind of have provinces, territories, municipalities, even communities working closely with federal government on this. I have read some literature that suggests in terms of domestic policies that lockdown type measures can impede the spread transmission of the virus. But so too, if you had robust contact tracing and testing, that could supplant in some ways that kind of harsh lockdown measure. And, and so when we look at that same kind of idea and we apply it to the border, you could have really tight preventative rules to say there won't be travel, or you could have a system of robust testing and quarantine. Canada has gone the secondary route. And when you stack up the lessons learned against the system that Canada has devised of the hotel quarantine for air travel the mandatory quarantine of 14 days for all travel and then the multiple testing, both pre-departure, but also on arrival and then eight days later. And obviously, these are the measures that are currently in place. They haven't been in place the entire time. So maybe some room to criticize the evolving nature of these rules. But when you look at the lessons that you're describing to us as against the system that Canada has in place, where does the Canadian system fall short? Where should we as policymakers say we need to do better. Yeah, evolving is good. I mean, we, we've learned as we've gone. So I don't see evolving policies necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. But if we take the four criteria just described uh, in terms of best practice, so Canada has taken really a more reactive rather than a preventive approach. We've had a kind of wait and see attitude, you know, wait to see how the pandemic unfolds, wait to see what other countries do, wait to see if the variants reach our shores, and then we react, you know, and it's that's unfortunately by the time you have, you know, the proper data, test results, genomic sequencing, that the variants are out there and they've actually arrived, then it's it's kind of too late. You know, you're 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 already having these cases spreading in your community. It's a bit like, you know, you're fighting a fire in front of you with data that's one or two weeks old. So you, you know, you're just kind of in a this kind of losing battle. So we have to stop targeting hotspot countries, as, as I described earlier, because that's a reactive approach. We, we need to prevent those cases from coming in. And most problematically, I think our border management in Canada has been not un universal. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. We haven't had the kind of airtight measures that other countries that I've studied have, have had. So we have exemptions. A third, I think, of travelers coming into Canada are exempt from any testing or quarantine. There's inconsistencies, you know, if you travel by air versus land, there's workarounds and loopholes that people are exploiting. And so this is resulting in travelers coming into Canada every day who are infected, who aren't being picked up, and they are going into the community and not necessarily quarantining. So that's a big concern. And so we, we have to really recognize that as, as problematic. And again, we don't have an integrated approach. We have some premiers really arguing and blaming the federal government, the federal government sort of denying that there's a problem and there's there's some buck passing there, some, some blame games. So I think that is problematic. We do need cooperation. So overall, I would say definitely Canada doesn't meet the gold standard that we're seeing out there where countries are really effectively managing this issue. The way I describe it is kind of like if you think of a castle with, with the outer wall and the inner wall, so the federal government is responsible for our outer wall. And the better we can do there, the less virus comes in and having to be dealt with within the castle. And then we have this next wall, which is kind of the provinces and territories. And at the moment, they're doing some things, but they're not necessarily able to fortify that wall because, again, that's a federal government responsibility. So the more we could push out the risk to the international borders, the more we can then be more free to travel around within the country. Because we've not done that, we've had to have these lockdowns and these kind of you know stop and start policies, which impact communities, because we're asking the communities to fight the variants. We're not keeping the variants outside of our borders. And so the big piece seems to be then, in some ways, the 
allowance for travel. That being either the definition of essential work and essential travelers, or the fact that Canadian citizens can continue to travel and obviously have a right to come back into the country. Other countries have restricted that kind of travel and have a more stringent, perhaps, definition of what essential travel might be. On the testing side, it does seem when I look at it that we do have a fairly robust system of testing in place for incoming travelers, but the definition side of the equation and the, and the allowance for travel is, is not nearly as restrictive as other countries. That's right. So we have testing. It's great. Multiple tests is important, but we don't test everyone. So we have these exemptions based on all sorts of things. You know, there's there's clearly there's some people who cannot comply with these rules because they're doing their work. Truck drivers and flight crews, for example, they need to be exempt. So we understand that, but they really need to be vaccinated then. And so they, they can go on and do their work safely for themselves, but also not impacting on other people. But there are other categories, you know, international students or people who are do cross-border work regularly, people who are in the armed forces and so on. So there's a whole list. Some of them, you know, there may be an argument to say, okay, let's reduce, you know, their, their, the testing quarantine requirements. But it doesn't mean they should be exempt because the virus doesn't really care, as I say, you know, who you are and, and why you're traveling. So we need to minimize those exemptions. And I know there's legal, potentially legal barriers to doing that. We can't stop Canadians from traveling abroad. We can't stop them from coming back in. But we can put in disincentives and we can make it more awkward, more expensive. And then they'll make the right choices and really only travel for very, very essential reasons. And I think that hasn't been used uh, early enough, we you know we've introduced it sort of post January and that right that because you would you would describe the hotel quarantine system as that kind of deterrence and disincentive. It just should have maybe been in place earlier. That's right. It and, and you know we're using three day quarantine. Some countries are using fourteen day hotel quarantine. Some are twenty one days, and that's the expense of the traveler. You can imagine not many people are going to travel if they have to pay for twenty one days of hotel, and so that is you know, that balance, I guess. And they introduced those very early on in 2020 when we did that in February, well after variants were circulating worldwide. When you look at the percentage of cases that are tracked back to travel, because the federal government will say it's one and a half percent or between one and a half and two percent of total cases that are tracked back to travel. And it may well be the case, it is the case that all cases at some point would be traced back to travel and the variants would be traced back to travel. But there's always leakage, as you mentioned. And when I go back to the minister's office and say, walk me through this one and a half to 2% number, and that number is based on those who are tested. And it's not to say that those people are out into the community. Those people predominantly are, are quarantining. And so of the percentage of cases of people who are positive in relation to travel, it's, it's a much smaller number that might be a risk to the community. And do you think that we are at when you look at the numbers, an acceptable level of leakage, knowing that there's always going to be leakage? Yeah, what you describe, you know, this number that gets thrown around and claim that we're doing a great job, that number is uh, very inaccurate. And, and doesn't, it's actually quite meaningless because as I've described, we're not testing and quarantining everyone. We're not contact tracing very well. Right. It, you know, the Auditor General report was very clear that the contact tracing system was was very weak. And so we actually didn't track every traveler that came in. If you look at Hong Kong, and I know it's a much smaller jurisdiction, but every case they've had, they know exactly where it came from. And they know, you know, who even what flights they were on and where they went and so on. So and that's publicly available data. You can you can actually do a risk assessment based on that kind of data. We've never collected that. We're still not collecting really comprehensive data. So, you know, you can't really do a proper risk assessment analysis based on partial data where you're not testing every traveler and you're not contact tracing them to make sure that they haven't come in contact with other people. This is a figure that should stop being circulated because it's misleading, but it's also dangerous because we're thinking, okay, then travel isn't really a problem. We won't do anything. It's not worth putting more resources to. And that's that's a problem for keeping Canadians safe from these new variants because we're 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 talking about even if it was 1%, let's say it was or 2%. If you have a handful of cases of a variant that comes in that demonstrates uh vaccine escape or you know we our vaccines don't work against it, we don't need many cases. We've seen how they can seed very large outbreaks 
in the community. So we don't, it's not about absolute numbers. You don't say, oh, okay, there's 10 cases, but we have a million cases in the country. So that's a tiny, tiny percentage. But the problem is that that small handful of cases can lead to another million cases. So you, it's not really, that's not a proper risk assessment, just give a percentage of total cases. So even the methodology used is very questionable, as well as the type of data that's collected. I haven't had a straight answer on this. I do know that people are concerned about the quality of data that's being collected and used. I've heard that there's manual input of some of the answers at the borders. Some people's typing into a computer some of the answers. You know, we don't have an automated system for collecting this. That's problematic. We have about a million people coming into the country every, I think, every month. So this is a lot of people. We should be collecting better data than making decisions accordingly. So this is a problem, I think, Nate, in terms of you know going forward and one of the lessons learned is we have to get this straight. And in January, you were one of the signatories. There were a long list of well-respected individuals signing on to a document through COVID Shield to call for greater restrictions as it relates to travel, to restrict travel to truly essential only, a more stringent definition, cancel all flights for non-essential destinations, increase testing and variant screening, enhancing quarantine, including daily in-person checks, and then deploying vaccines strategically, including for essential workers crossing the border as between the U.S. and Canada, but also the cross-border truckers that you were referencing earlier. And some of those measures have been adopted. And so far as there is enhanced quarantine, I don't think we have daily check-ins, although I, I know a neighbor of my mom certainly had a security personnel knock on our door and check in. So it is happening potentially more ad hoc than the daily that you were calling for. We certainly see increase in testing and there's been not as much of a national approach to the deployment of vaccines strategically as one might like to see, but we've started to see certain provinces move in this direction as it relates to cross-border trucking. We also see, though, 50% of adults have now received their first dose. The vaccination effort is well underway. Is there reason to say, well, all of these lessons that we've learned, we're glad we did some of them from the January document. We maybe should have done more on a going forward basis. We're looking at vaccinations on the way out of this, and we don't have to be concerned about travel measures or because of variants. I mean, you wrote in one of your reports recently, early implementation was identified as a determinant of effectiveness. And I wonder how that lesson translates to variants of interest and concern when possible interventions still remain early as it relates to variants. So are vaccinations sufficient here or is the travel conversation still relevant? Travel conversation is definitely still relevant. I know that I've heard people say, well, we're vaccinating and, you know, most of the transmissions within communities. So this is where we should be putting our efforts. But it's, it's again, you know, this, this fire analogy, you're fighting a fire, but somebody behind you is dropping matches. So you want to stop that person and, you know, as well as fight the fire in front of you. And, and, you know, it's, it's not either or. So we ought to keep the new introductions of the virus coming in and particularly the variants of concern and continuing to do what we do, which is roll out this mass vaccination. It's a real race between vaccination and variants. And, you know, at some point we were losing that battle because new variants were coming in and overwhelming, really, you know, the vaccination program. We seem to be now on an even keel, but that can turn very quickly. And if you look in the UK, for example, we have B1617 and its relatives now spreading quite quickly. That's a vaccinated population. And to some extent, there's still a lot of people not vaccinated. So we have to watch that closely and see what we can learn from that. So we shouldn't relax our guard and say, oh, yeah, you know, we've got this. Um, we're out of the woods. The worst case scenario is we vaccinate everybody that can be vaccinated or will be vaccinated. And then we, a variant comes along because, of course, they emerge continually as long as there's a lot of virus circulating globally. So say one comes along, it, it demonstrates vaccine escape. That means we may have to start vaccinating people again with another vaccine. And that is just, you know, horrifying to think after we've done so much work to then have to start again with another vaccine. It's something that, again, prevention is far easier than cure. And I know all those things that you mentioned, you know, do this daily checking and all these what seemed very draconian a year ago, those seem like a lot of resources to put into border management. I can tell you it's far less than having to start vaccinating everyone again and, and being in lockdown a year from now. Nobody wants that. That would be just a horrendous situation. So this is why we continue to push for better border management, 
throw away that 2% figure, which is not accurate and recognize that, you know, there is a real risk and we just need to make sure that we don't undo all the good work that's been done over the past 16 months. And when you look at the evolution of Canada's border restrictions, you mentioned the castle, as it were. It, It strikes me that in some cases, both the federal government, provincial government are that outer border when it comes to the check-ins. Because one one failing we've seen, individuals come in, they're under quarantine, there are rules in place federally for people not to skip quarantine, but then it becomes a provincial enforcement issue. And we really do need that cooperation as between jurisdictions to make sure that the federal rules, the that outer border, the rules in relation to our outer border are being applied sufficiently when people do come into the country. When we look at the evolution overall, we've seen improved rules from the beginning, not only improved guidance and the evidence grows as relates to WHO, but within Canada, increased stringency around testing and, and quarantine rules. If I were to make you the Minister of Health and you were to say, we've come a long way over the last year improving the rules, but there's still much we should do on a going forward basis, what would you want to see happen? Yeah, that's that's uh, you know what we're trying to figure out. But I think there's some clear things that I would put into place. I look at those inconsistencies that I described because they don't make any public health sense in terms of how the virus behaves. So I would, you know, really standardize the way people are treated, regardless of whether they're traveling by air, land or sea, whether they're essential or non-essential, where they're coming from. So really want to standardize and there will be still exemptions but they're going to be very few. And so this makes sure that we don't miss cases coming in and then we don't allow them to go into the general population. So that's one of the things I would implement a really rapid vaccination of these truck drivers, these flight crews, sea crews, you know, any key workers that really cannot do their job without traveling both within the country and across the international borders. That's starting to happen. I think it needs to be accelerated. It should have happened you know, in January, surprising that it hasn't happened yet. And then the the third thing I guess I would do is people are talking about easing measures, opening up, we're seeing some holidays being enjoyed now in Europe, and there's pressure now to open the Canada-US border. We cannot do this unless we put into place very risk-based, comprehensive measures so that we open from a position of strength. If you start to ease measures and you already have a lot of holes in your system, it's not going to be very effective at checking immunity status and making sure that people that do come in are vaccinated or have already been infected. We need to have that system in place and then we, we you know, kind of ease gradually out of this that we do so safely. And so it's not just, you know, about putting into measures now and making it even harder for people to travel. It's really about thinking about the future and laying that foundation. So there's lots of different ways we could do that. And, you know, that's what we all want. We want to we want to travel again. So we, we need to do that work before we do that. And it seems like PHAC is in a place right now, the Public Health Agency of Canada is in a place right now where they have laid out some criteria in very broad terms as it relates to domestic opening and our capacity to test and trace sufficiently is, as an example is one of the criteria and you could bring some of those criteria to bear on relaxing some border restrictions and i want to get to the conversation around vaccine certifications because it seems to me the initial relaxation would be country specific potentially if we had similar vaccination rates and similar public health policies but when you walk through those three steps that you would take so it makes intuitive sense as it relates to cross border truckers for example i agree I've raised this with the government on a few different occasions, but it makes eminent sense as a national strategy. We, we should be partnered with the U.S. To, to get this done in treating air, land, sea equally. That seems more complicated. And so far as there are hotels that are close to airports, there are facilities where it intuitively makes sense to have hotel quarantine, although I, that hotel quarantine has been a bit of a mess as is. It may well make sense if you're looking at treating travelers equally to say everyone is going to quarantine at home and that you use whatever resources you've been deploying via hotel quarantine and otherwise to actually just check in on people on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, that's this idea that I mean, people, other countries use bracelets. And I know, you know, Canadians don't like to be not keen on big surveillance infrastructure, but that might be a trade-off. You know, you, you don't stay in the hotel, but you have this bracelet, which then, or an app that some way that makes sure that people know you're in the right place and not mixing with the population. So, there are ways around it. You don't just have to have a hotel quarantine. Uh, but I heard the argument, you know, along the land borders, we have 117 two-way crossings. We can't possibly set up quarantine across all of those. Well, of course not. You couldn't. 
Um, some of them are very remote, but you can consolidate and rationalize the crossings like we did with the airports. You know, we can select key points. So you have the truckers who are vaccinated going across some of those crossings and then they, they can do so, you know, maybe with, with some technology and it could be really fast. Others who are non-essential or not exempted will have a slower crossing, but they're at designated points along the border. And that way you have the hotel quarantines or you have a bracelet system which allows them to travel onwards into their homes. I mean, we're going to have to do this anyway. If we open the border at some point with the US, we're going to have to have some way of checking every person coming in has a certificate of some immunity. So why not put it in place now and then test it out, you know, see how much uh, traffic comes through and then ramp up from there. But just kind of easing now with our system is, is really not going to work. It's going to be very hard to implement any more stronger system of checking immunity status with, with the current measures. I have family in Michigan who have been vaccinated. I was going back and forth by text with them where CDC has issued guidance insofar as if you have been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And that's created some confusion because lots of people in their more rural part of Michigan might not wear a mask and might not be vaccinated. <laughs> and if they have sort of the freedom to not wear a mask, they might take it and just how is anyone to know that they've been vaccinated or not? And that question of how is anyone to know gets to this question of vaccine certification. And as it relates to international travel, we have had vaccine requirements for international travelers pre-COVID. So this isn't a new idea per se, but it's a complicated one, particularly as it relates to equity, where there are many countries around the world who have not had the opportunity to be vaccinated in the same way. What are your thoughts on vaccine certification more broadly, I suppose, but also how do you think we should approach that conversation given equity considerations that are so obvious? Yeah, there's a lot of pressure certainly to get this sorted out as soon as possible. So there's clearly equity considerations because of the vast differences within and across countries, as you described, in terms of access to vaccines. And that's something we're slowly, you know, addressing, but nowhere near as fast as we should with the waiver and the, the patent protections and so on. But that's foremost. I, I would approach this conversation about equity, particularly by actively supporting probably actions that address inequities in access. So that's one way and hoping to alleviate those inequities, but also consider the inequities created by the travel measures themselves. So we are living through a pandemic where we've never had this use of border management in the way we have, and that's created a lot of inequities in terms of who can travel and who can't travel. And it's created a lot of hardship for sure. And when I make these recommendations, I'm very aware that they impact on people's lives. And that that's always an important consideration. So there are many people out there who are stranded, literally stranded, who can't get home. You know, we think about the number of Australians who can't get back to Australia. Families are separated. Even there's many, many ships at sea where the crews have been there for months and months. They're stuck out at sea. And then, of course, there's refugees and migrants and immigrant uh, populations who, who want to travel as well and are separated from, from where they want to be. So there's inequities created by the, the travel restrictions. So anything we can do to kind of move towards gradually easing them is going to address those inequities. And I guess we then have conversations about what the trade-offs are. We have an inequitable situation with vaccine access. We have a, inequities in terms of travel and you know trying to balance those, maybe pushing those particular travelers who are suffering inequitably up the agenda. So we're not talking about, oh, we're opening up because people want to go to holiday in Mexico and Hawaii. That should not be our driving force. It should be really about people's livelihoods. It should be about families being reunited. Yeah. Um, that That's the kind of equity-driven conversations that we should be having about easing borders and not just about the things that we're hearing. And unfortunately, that's what's driving the conversation at the moment. I was connected to an organization that was really calling for stronger family reunification rules and to say, this was last summer, and to say, you sent out a series of essential travel. Well, we are essential travel too. I want to see families reunited, I think, as a matter of fairness. It really comes down to the stringency from this conversation as well. I mean, the stringency of your testing and quarantine regimen and also ensuring that there's compliance with the rules where we have restricted travel, not maybe as much as other countries have. And we have a, a fairly robust testing system from what I can tell. But the exemptions from testing writ large would be a concern that you've identified where you're going to get leakage if you're 
you're not testing and quarantine pe- people. So that that exemption as a class is problematic potentially. And so that for that reason, you need vaccinations. But then otherwise, not doing enough on the enforcement side to guarantee compliance obviously leads to leakage as well. Absolutely. And you think about, you know, who is being exempted and what we're considering essential, non-essential is, is a judgment. It's a value who we yeah. d- decide who has the right to travel. And I, I think that's worth, you know, looking at again, because as you say, you know, what family reunification is something that people would consider essential, but we put that as non-essential. So there's, there's a, there a judgment there. I think there's a, a, a bigger issue around, we talk about border closures and travel bans. This, it, there's, there's been no border closure. They, you know, we, we've had restrictions and we've made judgment calls on who's allowed to travel. So it's about border management and who we decide can travel and under what conditions. So if we decide family reunification is a legitimate and what we want to do as a society, then we set the conditions. We say, okay, you can come into Canada and be reunited. We're going to test you several times and we're going to require you to quarantine in a particular way, but you can still travel. And at the moment, that isn't possible for non-Canadians or non-residents who want to be reunited with their Canadian families. There are some exemptions, but you know, and there are some restrictions as well. So it's about, I guess, creating the potential for new categories of people to travel. It could be now vaccination, but before it could have been other ways that we could have allowed that travel safely if we had put into place measures that didn't have a lot of leakage. And it was possible. We, we all want to keep traveling moving, but we just wanted to make sure it was safely done. We never argued for closing the border. That, that was not what was on the, on the agenda. And I think that's kind of a red herring. So going forward, I think if we can manage our borders, figure out the way to do that, keep the flow, we may have to create disincentives because we can't handle a lot of non-essential travel in terms of holidays and, and those sorts of things. But if we really did want to keep certain categories of travelers traveling for humanitarian reasons or whatever reasons, it's about putting into place the enablers to do that. And that's what I think we've learned from other countries is that it is possible to travel safely, even if you're infected with COVID, it's about quarantine and testing. Right, because not even the family reunification conversation, but there have been restrictions on refugees coming to Canada because of concern around travel. And, And so there are all sorts of humanitarian considerations that need to be brought to bear and not a question of shutting out this kind of travel, but how do we ensure this travel is done safely and in accordance with the best evidence we have? Uh, on the certification question, do you see some countries that are seized with this in a more serious way and are moving ahead? I, I've seen Minister Jolie speak publicly to say we're working with the G20 towards vaccine certification. Do you have a sense of where the global conversation is and, and if certain countries happen to be leading the way? Yeah, well, the European countries are really keen on this. They, uh, they have been for a while, you know, and that's to do with the European community and, you know, the, the, the need or the, the legal requirement for people to be mobile within the European Union. But also, of course, it's about the tourism industry and, and about people's livelihoods. So they have been leading the way, been pushing a number of different ways of doing that, whether it's apps or secure systems for proving vaccine status. It's really about immunity status. So if you've had COVID as well and, and you have a degree of antibodies, you can also be declared you know, safe to travel. So it's about immunity status. So there's a lot of different systems out there. And that's the, the kind of worry is that you, know, you have different ways of proving that you have immunity status and they don't they don't join up. So you know you have different countries using different things or different regions. So it does need to be a, an international, even a global effort to do that. Obviously, the countries that have the highest level of vaccination are the ones that are driving the conversation at the moment because they want to get their economies back again. They want to get people traveling, and they'll be doing deals with other countries that high, have high vaccination. What's interesting about Canada and the U.S. So we were slower off the the mark and uh, off the the blocks in terms of vaccination. And the U.S. roared ahead. But at this point now, we're starting to converge and maybe Canada will race ahead in terms of the level of total vaccination because we have less vaccine hesitancy. So they've hit this kind of point where there might be 30 percent of people will not get vaccinated for whatever reason. And here in Canada, we're hoping we're going to have about 10 percent, 10 to 15 percent. So this is a higher level of compliance, which means we might end up having a higher level of immunity in our population. So what do we do? You know, we have a neighboring country that has 70%, maybe lower because children, you know, need to be vaccinated as well. And we have higher rates. So, you know, this pressure to open the US-Canada border is a little bit worrying because how do we manage that? How do we 
ensure that Americans come in, which we do want them to come, have the right vaccine, have had two doses, or are you know going to comply with the public health protocols that we have in Canada. So there's all sorts of things that technical, as well as, I guess, public health protocols that need sorting out before we can even have that conversation. I guess that's what these initial conversations and are on that about. front, on that front in relation to the ability to travel upon being vaccinated and receiving the two doses. So my family members in Michigan received the J and J vaccine, the one shot. And shortly thereafter, CDC guidance was you can travel within the United States freely if you've been vaccinated, you're safe to do so. And they were very clear that it not only protects the individual, it also protects against transmission. And in Canada, our public health bodies have not gotten to this same place just yet. Do you have a view as to once someone is vaccinated, the extent to which they they ought to comply with the quarantine and testing rules that we have in place, that if we follow the science, if my family were to come up when they open up the border as between Michigan and Ontario, would they have to quarantine? Would they have to be tested if they've been fully vaccinated? Yeah, and the science is still emerging. So we we were, you know, learning. And I think that's what the hesitancy is with PHAC is that the science is still evolving on how transmissible someone with a vaccine still is. They can still be infected. Uh, we know that, that people who have been vaccinated have become infected at a you know less severe illness, but still could potentially then pass it on to someone else. So that, you know, all this data is being collected and and looked at, but um, it looks like transmission is dropping in countries with high vaccination rates. We learn from that as as the rollout goes. We understand level of risk, and you know, then we can translate that into who wears a mask, who gets tested in quarantine. Ultimately, hopefully, if we find that people who have been vaccinated are not a transmission risk then what we probably need to do is still do a test at the border that they are not infected. Um, There might be multiple tests still because they still may be infected, but they probably wouldn't need to quarantine unless they test positive. And so there might be a way where, you know, you come in, you do your test, you promise to do another test, but you can, you know, you don't need to quarantine necessarily. I hesitate to say that that will be the way because we don't know yet. And, you know, unleashing a lot of visitors well, we don't actually know the science is, is, is scary. But if that proves that, you know, we, we say let in a few people and then it's kind of a gradual thing and we track very carefully what happens with those initial travelers, we can learn as we go and then we can kind of widen it. The easing is not going to be some flinging open a door. I think it was never going to be like that. It's really like a tap that you kind of slowly open and you're making sure that you're, you know, screening a lot of for, for any risk and learning as you go and you may need to, you, you know, release some of those restrictions as you go. But it, it's kind of a natural experiment in some ways, I, I have to say, because we haven't been in this situation before where we've had to to do this. So based on the CDC guidance and what we generally know about vaccines and other contexts, if it is the case that individuals who are vaccinated can come into Canada say, well, there are other individuals you know, there's vaccine hesitancy. There are other individuals who may not be able to be safely vaccinated, small number. But in that case, well, we would still need testing and quarantine rules potentially, but then we'd be able to target our resources to those individuals who have yet to be vaccinated. And then those who have been vaccinated wouldn't be subject to the the same rules and, and we wouldn't have to use the same resources. You've spoken and written about the need for a stronger global framework that countries act within. And that framework ostensibly did exist pre-COVID through the WHO, but it clearly broke apart and was ineffective. And every country went about its own way, not only as it relates to domestic policy, but obviously it relates to travel restrictions. What should a global health convention for the 21st century look like? And how can policymakers contribute to make it happen such that it isn't just a paper document that breaks down when the next pandemic rolls around? Yes. All the easy questions, Nate. (laughs) Yeah, that, you know, but you're right. It's, it's a, you know, we can't have the chaos that we've just had over the past 60 months. The international health regulations were supposed to prevent this. It was renegotiated in the mid, you know, after SARS and it was, came into effect in 2007. It clearly didn't do the job that we wanted it to do. And we have to figure out why. Is it because there's something in the IHR that that's problematic, or is it something you know to do with the way countries behave and governments behave? And I think it's obviously a, a, a bit of both. So feeding in on the on the travel side, you know, we we we've realized that the the advice given under the IHR was was not right for this particular pandemic, and so there's a lot of kind of revision of the IHR going to happen in terms of the language and the 
the procedures on making recommendations on Article 43 around what's called additional health measures. So there's those kind of granular negotiations that are going to go on. But in the in the broader sense, there is a conversation about a pandemic treaty of some kind. You know, do we need a bigger vision of what we could do to prevent this kind of event happening again? And I, I I'm not really sure at this point what I think. I think there's an understanding that governments and world leaders want to do something and need to do something because we've had the worst pandemic in a century now. Also, there's the international legal frameworks for global public health are very thin on the ground if you look at the kind of treaties we have. Given how important health is and and what we've realized is health is a starting point for the, the global economy. We can't have health. We can't have the economy working. So really, it's foundational. But why do we have so few legal frameworks in place? So there can be a look at, first of all, what kind of overarching treaty might be needed to ensure that information is shared more readily or that countries are coordinated in the kinds of measures they take. That was IHR <laughs> uh, anyway. But, the, you know, maybe we need something on a higher level that actually goes beyond health. It goes maybe to the UN Security Council or the UN General Assembly rather than WHO, which has been proven to not have sufficient resources and authority to apply this. So that that's the debate. You know, do we strengthen WHO and the IHR? Or do we create something different, but we at the same time don't want to undermine WHO? It's more than a scientific challenge. It's really a mainly a political challenge to kind of get our governments to think beyond sovereignty and national interests. And that's that's a tall order. It know? feels a lot like climate change. Eh? It feels a lot like it does. Yeah. We are we're having a conversation about pandemic risk and pandemic preparedness in the same way we we're having conversations about climate change 20 years ago, that it, we're in sort of the infancy of figuring out how we move beyond our borders to work together. There have been reports from UNEP and reports from the Intergovernmental Science Platform on biodiversity and ecosystems about pandemic risk and prevention. And then there's your focus, which in many ways is about preparedness. So how do we have rules in place so that we're, we've got capacity to respond and that there's a global governance system in place to properly respond to pandemics when they happen. And both as it relates to travel, but, but of course, as also as it relates to manufacturing capacity and, and, and making sure that we can deliver for the world as it relates to treatment tests and vaccines. And I don't think we've had a sufficient conversation on, on, on any of these matters, including reducing pandemic risk in the first place. <laughs> you know, I, although I note that Italy yes. in hosting the G20 this year, they have a concept note that is very much focused on a one health approach and reducing pandemic risk. So I hope it's a conversation we increasingly take seriously. That's precisely the direction we'd be going. You know, we allowed, I guess, our world to evolve into a globalized world driven by largely markets. And, the, and at the same time, you know, shrinking the role of government in many countries the tax base and so on, big companies have defined globalization. So what we've had is a situation where pandemic comes along, not unrelated to what has happened over the last 30 years. And we are at a loss because we don't have the infrastructure, the public health systems, the governance systems in place to kind of respond collectively. So we're in a really historic place where do we want to continue to be a globalized world or do we want to retreat into our individual countries? I I want the former and, you know, and I think most people would, we, we can't go back in time. We don't want to live just in our little patches of, of land on this earth. And so we then need to invest in, in the kind of governance systems, agreements, resources that will enable us to move about the world in a, on a planetary level, but in a safe and a, and a sustainable way. That, that's the big challenge for this generation going forward in terms of negotiating past this pandemic. Well, then you leave me with, the, with the, the hard questions and the hard challenges on that front. I very much appreciate your time. Do not hesitate to be in touch. I think it's helpful, particularly on the travel conversation. It's nice to talk to an expert and away from the partisan-driven conversation where we have premiers that are just trying to use the travel conversation as a deflection point. And then on our side, it seems rather than identify weaknesses and try to fill gaps where there are weaknesses, there's been a pushback to say, well, you're using this for partisan purposes, which is true, but it, it then pushes the conversation in a very political way, away from the evidence, away from experts. I would say Minister Heidi, she has a round table of experts that she gets advice from, and the advice is supposed to be public sometime in the near future. So I know there are some maybe mixed views on all this as well, even among experts, but I, I very much appreciate your time and the depoliticization of the travel conversation. It's not the time to be partisan. I, I totally agree, Nate. I, th these are not issues about 
um, you know, partisan politics. This is about really all of us getting together and coordinating at this time. It's, we're at a really critical point in the pandemic, and I would hate to meet you in a year's time and have the same conversation and, oh, no why kidding. didn't we do this or that? Nobody no wants kidding. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, honestly, don't uh, keep keep up the great work and uh, and really interesting work and, and don't hesitate to be in touch and, and certainly send anything my way that it would inform my advocacy on this particular issue or other issues as it relates to pandemic prevention and preparedness, because it is that as a, as a conversation domestically, but also globally is one that I think we have to really lead on going forward. So anyway, that's all I'll say. I appreciate your time. I'll take you up on your offer actually, and I'll certainly uh, keep in touch. I appreciate this opportunity. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. The picture is obviously a mixed one. It's a fair criticism to say we've been more reactive than proactive at times. And while the current system is now in many ways a robust one, limits to essential travel, multiple tests, mandatory quarantine, Professor Lee rightly points out that the limits to essential travel don't work for Canadians and that they include broader exemptions than we see in other countries. And she's also right that the enforcement of existing rules has been deficient, an area that not only falls to the federal government, but to the federal and provincial governments to work together. We are now in need of our provincial and federal government officials to avoid the trading of public letters back and forth, to end the nonsensical paid attack ads, and to sit down together to hammer out an agreement on enhanced measures. We also need to move much faster to vaccinate necessary cross-border travelers and to work towards vaccine certification with the U.S. in particular and really any other country where so much of our travel is necessary. It's probably worth exploring the vaccine certificate issue in greater detail for a future episode. If there are any other topics you'd like me to address through the podcast, you can always reach me at BEYNate on social media or by email at info at BEYNate.ca. An example of how these uncommons conversations can shape my advocacy, but a past episode with Paul Farmer on the need for global vaccine equity and reasons to support the TRIPS waiver helped lead me to work across party lines on an open letter that we ultimately had signed by over 75 MPs from all parties in our House of Commons. NDP MP Don Davies, who I worked closely with in that campaign, will be my next guest to talk cross-party collaboration, drug policy reform, and more. So I hope you'll join me for that episode as well. And otherwise, until next time.